Earlier today, we did catch up with the Northern Territory Police Association after the Northern Territory Ombudsman released a report calling for spit hoods to be banned through legislation for adults as well as youths. The report recommended Northern Territory Police explore alternative approaches with experts instead of using uh, those restraint chairs. Now, um, joining me in the studio right now is the Northern Territory Police Assistant Commissioner, Travis Worst. Good morning to you. Morning, Katie. Morning to your listeners. Now, Assistant Commissioner, in what circumstances are spit hoods and restraint chairs used? So spit hoods, in the first instance, spit guards, as uh, as we, we call them, are only used on adults in the watch house precincts across the Territory. They're not able to be used in any other um, uh, environment outside of that. That's what our current policy position is. Uh, certainly, we cannot use them on youth at all. Uh, unfortunately, for the way in which uh, our, um, our business operates, that although police might take all the steps they need to mitigate the risk and harm associated with people spitting at them, uh, those risks and harms don't actually mean that they're not going to be affected by anyone spitting at them. So we still use those tools within the watch house environment. It's a necessary tool to support our police to make sure they're not affected. There is nothing more disgusting and abhorrent than being spat on. I've been in that situation. It's disgusting. We actually had one of our members in the Alice Springs watch house on Monday who was spat upon. It's disgusting, and it, um, it not only the impact of the actual event itself, but it requires our police to go through um, a set of protocols to make sure that their health and well-being is maintained, and that actually can take months and months to step through, um, all the testing that's required, uh, all the unknowns that come with that. Unfortunately, we've had people who've contracted uh, illnesses as a consequence of being spat on. It's disgusting. Yeah, it so is. we'll continue to use those, um, uh, those tools to protect our police in that watch house environment only. Yep. Uh, we don't use them for transporting prisoners. We don't use them in public. Uh, but we certainly still do use them. Noting the report from the Ombudsman and mm. the recommendations, we're well aware of those recommendations and we'll continue to work through those uh, Can you tell me, days. because I know a lot of people listening are going to think to themselves that the spit hoods are probably similar to what they've seen in vision, let's say, from Dondale Youth Detention Centre many years ago. Um, what do these spit hoods actually look like? What I'll do or next they're time... not spit hoods, are they? No, they're spit not, guards. What I'll, what I'll do next time I come in. Again, it's not very good for radio, yeah. but I'll show you what they actually look like. Yep. They're no longer as evasive. They're not as dark. They still prevent... There's visibility. You can still see. Um, they just prevent a person from spitting. Uh, and we obviously manage them in particular ways that if there's a risk of someone who may be intoxicated and may be a risk of vomiting, we don't mm. utilise them uh, in the same way. So... Um, they're not what, what people have seen in the, in the, the media that have been demonised. Yes, they're, they're, they're quite a, a, a drastic step, but unfortunately sometimes our client base do not listen. We can do all the de-escalation that, that we think was needed, but that doesn't make a difference. So at the end of the day, we need to take those steps. And it is disgusting. You know, spitting on somebody is absolutely disgusting and there does need to be some protection measures in place. Um, you know, you do need to make sure that you're keeping officers safe as well. And, um, and you know, the last thing that anybody wants when they go into their workplace is to be spat upon, but to then have to worry for several months afterwards while they wait for those tests to be conducted. So... Um, um, you know, I understand that the Ombudsman's obviously released this very extensive report, but I also can understand exactly why uh, those guards are being used. Now, I do want to move along because there is so much to cover off on this morning. I want to talk to you um, about these few incidents that have occurred over the last couple of days. We did 
catch up with one of the victims of an assault that had occurred in the CBD on Tuesday afternoon. Now, as I understand it, firstly, a 21-year-old was allegedly assaulted and then uh, Leah, who we spoke to um, just a short time ago, who talked us through what had happened from her perspective, um, she said the police did an amazing job and were there, uh, you know, quickly and helped out immensely. Um, but have those have there now been charges laid? So, yes. So we're talking about uh, a matter that occurred on the 29th of August in Austin Lane in the CBD where there was a 21-year-old um, a woman who was returning to a car in that area who was approached by a group of um, uh, young females and they stole her handbag. There was another person which... Um, became involved she too was assaulted uh, these girls then left the area uh, police police used their um, tools their cctv network predominantly to track um, them onto a bus that bus was then later stopped and three young people were taken into custody now uh, it's worth explaining to your listeners the way that transpired so these three young um, females who were arrested one was actually later identified as being 11. She yeah. wasn't known to the police. As soon as it was known that she was under the age of criminal responsibility, she was released from police custody and taken to uh, her responsible adult and um, and placed in the re- care of that responsible adult. Were Territory families then notified? Is that part of the yes, process? Yes, absolutely. So as soon as um, a a person under the age of criminal responsibility is identified as being involved in behaviour such as this. Uh, police's responsibility is to notify territory families through the referral process that we step through, uh, and then that is then placed um, into the remit of territory families to use their um, on the right track program mm. to then be able to wrap around that young person, their family, to prevent that fu- any future offending. Yeah, and we did speak to territory families about that yesterday to get a bit of a better understanding of how it all works. But I tell you what, you know, um, it is sort of cold comfort for the victim of that crime um, to think that, you know, that it can be assaulted and that is the process. But I know that that's, um, you know, the, the, the police work within the uh, the legislation that you've got. Now, another frightening incident in Palmerston where a mother was attacked while putting her child in the car. Um, uh, how did this unfold? So we had uh, a situation in the Palmerston CBD uh, on the same day, on the 29th of August, where, as you've just described, um, a young mother was placing a child on the car. Two um, 13-year-old males approached her um, and, in the course of trying to um, steal her car keys, a weapon was produced, uh, being a knife. Uh, those young people then left the area. Uh, and police have both ident- they've both been identified and have both been charged with aggravated robbery in, in relation to that offending. Uh, the, the key element here is the the fact that these young people were armed with and chose to produce a knife is just not acceptable uh, in any any um, measure, no matter which way you look at it. Mm. Um, the, thankfully, there was no injuries sustained by the. Um, the mother or her children, other than obviously the trauma associated with being exposed to that particular behaviour. Yep. And those young people are now on bail. Um, so they've been bailed? I believe so, yes, and a pending court. Who decides then that they get bailed after an incident like that? Depending on the circumstances, they're 13, so um, if they've got criminal history, that depends on whether they're already on bail. I'm not entirely sure whether they're on bail at the time. Yep. Um, and obviously, we, if we have concerns, we'll place them before the court, and then the courts will decide. Yeah, look, I know that uh, plenty of people listening are going to be quite surprised to hear that, you know, you can you can threaten a mum with her baby in, uh, in a vehicle and then end up on bail. I think they'll be... <sighs> 
ropeable, some people. Yeah, look, they may well be, and I understand that. Actually, I need to... Um, Double check. I do, no, yeah. no, I can oh. tell you the first child, yep. where the 13-year-old was remanded in custody okay. until the next day. Yep. Um, and the other the other one I've said that was bailed, but... Um, we can always double check. I need check to double check that now. Yeah, yeah. I, I do that's not right. want to let mislead your listeners. No, no, that's all right. We but can that's always the double check. We would normally step through. Assistant Commissioner, are these kinds of attacks, or um, you know, what's going on? Uh, is it becoming more brazen? Because to the community, it feels like it is. We have seen a change in behaviour, and you and I have sat mm. here and discussed this over a number of years. That we have seen a change in behaviour. Uh, of young people in the way in which um, some certain offences um, are, are committed. So previously a shop stealing would simply just be that, but there was uh, a period of time so, uh, a while ago where there was um, a trend to take a weapon along to a, what would ordinarily be a shop stealing and it would become an aggravated robbery. This is not something that we see happen very often where that high level type of offending by such young, uh, young people mm. um, Regardless of whether there's a change in the trend and the behaviour of these young people, we need to get to the bottom of why it's occurring and what needs to happen here, and this is part of what the knife strategy process is about, is actually be able to understand what's happening in the minds of these young people, why it is that they choose to do what they do, and put education in place, not just from a policing point of view, but across all sectors who have a stake in managing young people in the community, to be able to put measures in place to try and address that causal factor. We can't just worry about the end result and, and lock them all up because um, something bad has already happened. We need to get to the other end of this spectrum, understand why, understand... And uh, the knife strategy, con strategy contains lots mm. of... <coughs> excuse me, information, but it, at its heart, people are making decisions to, to carry a knife and to do certain things. We need to get to the point of understanding what that looks like. Um, we will put pl uh, measures in place. Uh, part of the knife strategy includes uh, a police-initiated action plan. That will involve um, the use of the, the wanding technology that's, um, that's not far away for us to be able to use it in the community that will commence no sooner than the 21st of September. But all those sorts of things are um, community-based um, end-of-the-spectrum approaches. Lots of work needs to be done at the front end of this, education uh, and engagement with young people, with all of the stakeholders, to be able to make sure they understand the ramifications, the risk they place themselves under and the community, um, so that we're actually getting to a point where people just aren't are choosing not to carry knives. Well, we did speak to um, the Police Association about this earlier this morning, and they questioned the, the, the government's um, data that they'd use. So the knives and edged weapons making up only 5% of violent crimes. Did that data, did that, um, did it come from the Northern Territory Police? So this knife strategy was developed by the Attorney General's Department, um, and... They may well have done their own data analysis there. I can't speak to the okay. um, the data that's in there. Yep. That's all right. Um, I, uh, just on that strategy, though, um, obviously it includes the development of an NT police-led action plan to prevent knife crime in public places. Is that different to the wanding strategy? It's all part of it. So there needs to be education, engagement. Part of it will be wanding once that's available to us as a tool. Um, a lot of it will be bail management as well. There's lots of tools here and it's part of that broader strategy around, as I've just discussed, the education component. So it's not the education will be something police will be a part of, but it needs to be part of the holistic approach to the risks and dangers that knife crime poses to the community. It's not just about youth either. 
um, lots of knife crime relates to adults and relates to um, urban, regional, remote offending. It's not all just um, what people might picture as being in an urban setting. I want to move along again. There is a lot to cover off this morning. We know the Deputy uh, Commissioner Murray Smallpage uh, has announced his retirement from the Northern Territory Police Force after 44 years uh, in policing. Do you know why he's made this decision? So anyone who gets to 44 years in policing deserves to retire and retire um, with prestige. He um, started in Western Australian Police and has ended his career here. Uh, on the 15th of September of this year, actually, is the 44th year of his policing career. That's extraordinary. Um, he has chosen um, this time as a time for him to um, jump in his caravan and sail off into the sunset, so to speak, and I wish him all the best. I thank him for everything he's done for the Northern Territory and the Northern Territory Police uh, in his time in the Territory. Uh, he's brought a lot of experience and a wealth of knowledge and passion um, to what he has achieved over that time, and I, I wish him all the best. I know it's uh, not your decision. Obviously, he's made the decision to retire, but I know that there's some sort of questioning in the community as well, whether it's as a result of a change of leadership and uh, and following on, you know, from what we'd seen under um, former leadership. I mean, do you think it's just a case here where he's put his hand up to retire? Well, without without speaking too much on his behalf, he is um, his contract. Um, was coming to an end next year anyway, and he's made the decision now that um, that he'll um, he'll take matters into his own hands and uh, and retire. Well, Travis Worth, Assistant Commissioner, um, what's the process now, actually, though, in uh, sort of you know in in terms of I know you're not the the commissioner, you're you're the assistant role, but what's the process now in terms of filling that role that he steps out of? So once that's um, been vacated, uh, normally what would happen, and obviously Mr Murphy has been promoted to commissioner as well from the deputy role, so the commissioner at a point in time will determine whether he wishes to fill the deputy role and it'll be advertised as as um, is the normal course. Well, uh, Travis Wurst, Assistant Commissioner for the Northern Territory Police, I really appreciate your time this morning as always. No doubt we'll talk to you again soon. No problems. Thanks, Thank Katie. you.